No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to all of us and affect each one, each one of us. Uh, today we have a couple of special guests. We have uh, Megan Flynn from the Washington Post, uh, who wrote an article on what to expect when the, if the Republicans take over the House, unfortunately, it, it's more like when the Republicans take over the House. And we also have with us Noah Wills. And Noah is uh, an organizer who has, has organized a thing called the D.C. Statehood Pledge and the Statehood Compact. It's just a, a, an amazing project. And we want to tell us all about it. Nate, uh, Noah is a native of Pennsylvania. He graduated from American University with a major in law and society and a minor in political science. And I think I warned him at the time that studying political science may lead you someday to elected office. So you have to be careful. But it's great to, it's, it's great to have you on the show, Noah. Thanks for taking the time. I've known Noah for a while, and, and he's just a great guy. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Happy to be back on the show. Um, let me ask you, tell us about this project. I, I, You know, I heard about this project the other day, and I, I was not only blown away by by the nature of the project, but how successful you've been. You've just really been successful. So please tell us. First of all, explain to us what the statehood pledge is and what the statehood compact is and what the difference between the two of them is. Sure. Um, so the statehood pledge is a campaign that serves as the uniform way for federal, state, and local candidates and elected officials to show their public support for D.C. statehood. Um, when I created it a couple years ago, I thought there needed to be a uniform way for mm-hmm. these these candidates to publicly support statehood because before there were just sort of a bunch of random social media posts here and there. And the only official source was really for the incumbent federal elected officials who could co-sponsor the federal legislation. So this was sort of an opportunity to educate candidates and their voters around the country and also hold these candidates accountable for, you know, if they are elected to take action on their support. So the, the pledge is really during the election cycle And then to contrast that, the D.C. Statehood Compact is a separate campaign that serves as a uniform way for state legislative and executive elected officials to take action on their support. So it's basically akin to the federal strategy of acquiring co-sponsors on the legislation in Congress, but at a state and territorial level. So um, for these two campaigns, uh, the compact, we've introduced supportive resolutions 
uh, and letters in state legislatures in 26 states, and over 500 state legislators have supported those measures in the last two years. And then for the pledge, um, we are currently sitting at 851 total pledged candidates, and over 500 of those are currently running in the 2022 election. Well, that's just amazing, and isn't it? Uh, isn't it somewhat cryptic that you have eight hundred and fifty-one? Uh, you know, because fifty for our listeners—that's our big thing—is that we want to be the fifty-first state. But uh, I don't—I'm not hearing people give this the kind of credit you should be getting, Noah, because this is exactly what we need. We cannot bestow statehood upon ourselves. If we could have done it, we would have done it a long time ago. But we need support and we need grassroots support. And it has to come from, as all grassroots support, from the bottom up in the states. Just for our listeners to to educate you a little bit, uh, we had a constitutional amendment that went out to the states, passed both houses of Congress, uh, bipartisan support, went out to the states, and it was only ratified by 16 states. So it felt way short of being ratified. If uh, Noah had been around in those days, uh, he was probably in elementary school at the time, but if he had been around in those days, I'm sure that we would have been much more successful about it because we didn't do anything like what Noah's doing right now to prepare the states. We just went into the states and we figured that our, uh, you know, the righteousness of our cause would carry the day, which it, which unfortunately it did not. Uh, let, let me ask you, Noah, I noticed 850 people. That's amazing. Are they all Democrats? They are not all Democrats. Um, they're actually comprised of individuals running in federal, state, and local races. They're Democrats, Republicans, and independents. They're in legislative, executive, and judicial branches. They're incumbents and non-incumbents. So it's very all-inclusive. Um, and some of the big names that have signed, of course, are uh, people like Secretary Pete Buttigieg when he ran for president, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, U.S. Senate candidates like John Fetterman, U.S. Gu- uh, gubernatorial candidates like Josh Shapiro and Beto O'Rourke, and even party leaders like uh, Jamie Harrison, just to name a few. And, well, you know, that in itself is amazing, too, that you have Republicans in there because, you know, we've had the only Republican, a guy named Wayne Gilchrist, who was a congressman from Maryland, is the only Republican in the history of the country to ever vote for yay on a D.C. statehood bill. And this is a very partisan issue. For those of you, uh, again, listening, we have a bill that passed the House I think with uh, just over 218 votes, all Democrats. Uh, and we have it. It's now in the Senate with 47 co-sponsors, all Democrats, not one Republican. So the fact that you're getting Republicans on the on the bill is absolutely or, or to, to take the pledge is absolutely amazing because that's what we need. We need bipartisan support. Uh, we're not going to get 60 votes in the Senate. And anytime soon. So we need we need some brave Republicans to stand up. And of course, as I say many times on the show, we need the Republican from West Virginia. We need somebody to remind Mr. Manchin that he actually is a Democrat. 
because he seems to forget that a lot. Uh, but um, uh, so it's great that you're doing that. Let me ask you: Are you what? I assume that you're that sometimes you you uh, get resistance to this, and I assume that a lot of that resistance comes from Republicans. What, what do people say to you that 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 don't want to sign, or do they say anything? They just don't sign. Yeah, so I would say 99% of the time, it's a very positive interaction. Um, some, I would say most of the time, especially with these statewide candidates, this is the first time they're being introduced to the D.C. statehood movement and what it actually means. Um, and when, you know, you talked about Republicans, the, the compact where the, we have these resolutions in state legislatures, that's where a majority of our Republican support comes from. Um, and so, yes, I do get some pushback, of course, uh, from some candidates. Uh, it could either be because candidates don't like taking pledges because they don't just they don't believe in pledges in general. Um, or, you know, I have had I'll give you one specific example. Um, I talked to a Republican in a state uh, a couple years ago, asked him to consider, you know, supporting statehood, consider um, uh, sponsoring a resolution in his state, um, had a great back and forth conversation with him over a couple of days. Unfortunately, um, he decided that he was more in favor of retrocession, which is, of course, the idea of giving D.C. back to the state of Maryland, which uh, is sort of anti to the statehood movement. Um, and he actually ended up introducing one of his own resolutions in, in that manner. So I, w- I was able to, um, after that, get a resolution in support of actual statehood in that state as well. But that's that's one example of where it sort of went off the off the, the path I was trying to go down. Well, you know, we should point out that retrocession, uh, you know, tends to be a rare, red herring, which is why it's, it's, as you point out, Noah, it's not what statehood people want. Uh, it puts a lot of obstacles in the way. Of course, it is a form of statehood. Uh, if we were part of Maryland, we would be part of a state. But there are all sorts of complications that Maryland would have to agree and D.C. would have to agree and we'd have to, I mean, and, and that's usually why they why they talk about uh, retrocession. Um, and, um, yeah, I've had the same. That's one of the – when you talk about it in the Senate, that's one of the main objections. They all say, oh, go back to Maryland, you know. And, and But, unfortunately, we've even asked Maryland, uh, and they said they didn't want us. We asked them a few years ago, and they brought it up before the legislature and said they didn't want us. But, again – what you're doing is so important. I, I want to give you an example, and that is Claire McCaskill, who was the senator from Missouri. She was a strong supporter of uh, uh, legislation to give uh, a vote to the District of Columbia. And the reason she said she was is because when she was in the state legislature, she voted for it when the constitutional amendment came to Missouri. She voted for she voted for uh, uh, a statehood, and she carried that from, you know, 20 or 30 years prior and and, and was a real supporter of uh, our efforts uh, when she got to Congress. So, you know, again, it's so important, especially the state and the local people that you're getting on uh, this thing uh that you know, it's it it's just a great great idea, and you and and it just shows you what one person who's committed uh, can do. Um, 
And how much of the, you know, I know you work for a living, so how much, how much time does this take? It must take an incredible amount of time. Uh, it, it does take a lot of time, um, and I'm obviously very passionate about the state of the movement, so I'm happy to do it. But um, it's basically a lot of organization. I have a giant Excel sheet um, of everybody basically running for office in every state. There are currently about 7,000 seats up for election in the 2022 wow. cycle. Um, so it's a lot, of, uh, a lot of candidates, a lot of seats. Um, so I will contact campaigns throughout the election cycle on you know, nights and weekends and uh, you know, just asking for their support. And what do you do? Do you call them on the phone? Do you email them? Do you do you just pick up the phone and say this is Noah and use your uh, obvious charm to get them to sign on? Uh, so I, I have tried a variety of of methods uh, over the past two or three years. Um, the most successful have been email and uh, direct messages on Twitter. Um, so usually when I'm looking at who has either won their primaries or who's just running in general, I will look for their email on their campaign website and I will, uh, follow them on Twitter. And if they follow me back, I'll send them a direct message just saying, Hey, thanks for the follow. You know, would you consider sporting statehood? And if so, will you, um, you know, will your campaign add their name to, uh, to the pledge? And again, like 99% of the time, it's a great interaction. They're usually very, um, supportive of it. So, um, yeah, email and Twitter, I think are the two best methods two best methods I found. Well, and, you know, again, I think that your approach is brilliant because uh, a lot of the opposition we get at the national level uh, comes in the form of the Republican Party doesn't like this. They don't like this idea. So when you get people early on, look, I, I haven't talked to very many people in the 16 years that I've been elected to this office that are against us having the same rights everybody else has. It's everybody seems to be for it. Uh, but in the end, uh, you know, this kind of national opposition to it, uh, they say things like, oh, you need to retrocede or you need to, you know, you need to uh, uh, have a constitutional amendment or you need to, you know, they try to throw obstacles in the way. But nobody actually comes out and says, no, you don't deserve, you pay your taxes, you fight in wars, you do everything that every other American citizen does, and you don't deserve representation. That's We hardly ever hear that. So, uh, yeah, your approach is great, and it's great that you're doing it. You know, for years we talk about this grassroots effort and this grassroots effort, but the only grassroots effort going on is here in the District of Columbia. And it doesn't really do us any good. Now, as you know, we've started chapters like Iowans for DC statehood and, and, and Nevadans for DC statehood and Californians for DC statehood. But they're really, you know, uh, organizations that, 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 except for Iowa, Iowa does a lot. But the other two really don't do a whole lot. You know, they're volunteer organizations. So the fact that you're reaching out at the grassroots level in the states, that's exactly what we need. Now, I saw briefly, uh, and I have to see if I can pull it up uh, again, uh, your your compact map. Um, and it seemed to me that that, uh, oh, I really don't see. Oh, they're asking me to sign on. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't believe in. No, I'm teasing. Uh, uh, but I saw a map, 
it seems to me, are there any states on this map, let me ask you, that uh, surprise you? Like, we don't have a lot of support in Republican-controlled states, but it seems to me that you have a lot of states on that map where where Republicans are in control. Um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the great thing about the statewide strategy is it only takes one legislator to introduce a resolution. Right. Um, so if you can find one, which I've been able to do in several states, you know, it's it may not be... Um, you know, the best state if you're looking to actually pass the resolution. But right now, I think it's best um, that we're at least getting the message out there and getting these resolutions even considered. Um, there have been a handful of states uh, that have had hearings on the, the state resolutions. There, have, there are some states that have actually passed their resolutions in at least one chamber. Um, so, you know, the, the, the specific state isn't as much of a shock as, you know, how far it can go in the state, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. And, and, and uh, you know, um, one of the states, now this isn't a surprise, but one of the states that you seem to highlight uh, on, on the information that I looked at was Hawaii. And Hawaii just spontaneously, a couple of years ago, introduced uh, something in the Senate uh, to to pass D.C. statehood. Were you guys involved in that? Were you involved in, in getting those uh, Hawaiian senators to stand up for D.C. statehood? Uh, so Hawaii has introduced a uh, resolution in the last two cycles. So they're one of the state legislatures where the, the legislation doesn't carry over every year. Um, mm -hmm. But before 2021, um, Hawaii did actually introduce um, legislation, the Hawaii Senate back in 2016, right. um, the Hawaii House and Senate back in 2013. So Hawaii has always been, you know, one of our biggest supporters, obviously, because they are one of the most recent states to be uh, admitted to the union, which is great. Um, but, you know, it's, it's even though they've already considered something like this, the legislators change every couple of years. The the issue can be brought back up and, and reconsidered just to keep the, the momentum alive in these states. So Hawaii's been great. And actually, Hawaii is one of those states where, uh, at least in the Senate, there is uh, Republican support. So a Republican actually voted for the passage of the bill on the floor. That's great. And, and again, that's so important. And I should point out, although Alaska... I really haven't worked much with Hawaii other than, than to support them. Uh, you know, I supported the senator that introduced the bill. I also volunteered to go there and testify. Uh, I know what you're thinking. How? What a selfless act to, to, to volunteer to go to Hawaii to testify. I had my suntan lotion and everything ready, but they but they didn't they didn't invite me. But we've also I've I've also dealt with Alaska and Alaskans are very much in in in, in our court, even though it's a Republican state. Murkowski has always kind of danced uh, around the issue. Uh, but we met personally with Don Young, who uh was uh the congressman from Alaska for God, I don't know how long. They only have one congressman. And uh, he was very supportive. Unfortunately, he's passed away. We were just working with him. But um, uh, people in Alaska, and, and I mean, this ought to tell you something. It ought to tell you that, you know, that, that 
These are the last two states of the union, and they understand how important this is. You know, we've had all sorts of crazy people, right? Right, Noah. We have one Republican who said, I can't remember if it was Mark Meadows or who it was, that said, we can't be a state because we don't have a bowling alley or a car dealership. Uh, which, by the way, isn't true. We do, we do have a bowling alley and a car dealership. But I wrote to him and I said, look, 40 states entered the union without a car dealership in a bowling alley because I know this because the car dealership, the car hadn't been invented yet, and the first bowling alley hadn't opened in Ohio yet. You know, it was the first opened in Ohio and it hadn't opened until we already had 40 states. So obviously... There's nowhere in the Constitution where it requires us to have a bowling alley and a, and a, um, a car dealership. But, um, you know, this has been a, a, a heavy lift, and you've done so much to uh, facilitate it. Let me ask you, um, what if, if you could have anything to help you, what would that be? Do you need, would money help you? Would, uh, would it, would it be, um, better if you had a, a, a bigger, you know, more people working on this or is this just a slow slog that, that somebody has got to do, you know, that, that you've got to labor in the, in, in the vineyards to make this happen. And, um, you know, it needs to be slow and steady. What do you think about that? Well, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be the one organizing all of this and kind of keeping track of everything. Um, definitely money is not necessary because it is so easy to just go up to these candidates and elected officials and just ask them for their support. So I would say there was one thing that people, especially listening on this show, can do. It's to ask the candidates that are running in your district or your state to uh, support statehood, to add their name to the pledge. And the thing about the D.C. Statehood Pledge is it's really just the first step, and it's sort of like a signal for future action. So when federal candidates take the pledge, we kind of expect them to then co-sponsor the legislation in Congress when the, if they're elected. And for these statewide candidates, if they pledge, we hope that they will at least sponsor or co-sponsor one of these resolutions when the time comes. Um, and so my goal, at least for the 2022 election, is to get a thousand candidates by election day. So we have 150, wow. 149 left to go. Uh, we have a couple of months. So that's what I'm going to be working on. Well, that's great. And, you know, um, on my best day, I'm not as charming as you, but if you need somebody to help you make phone calls, uh, I, I would volunteer to help you with Twitter, but that would probably only be disastrous. I would probably annoy more, more people than, than, than I got. Um, Tell us what the just tell us again what the pledge and the compact are, and you know read the terminology for for, for the two of them. Can you? Sure. So uh, the pledge is very simple, and it kind of is what it sounds like. So we ask candidates to take a pledge, and that pledge says, "I pledge to support admitting Washington D.C. into the Union as a state of the United States of America." So very very simple, very direct. Um, and when they add their name, you know, we, we, of course, add them to the list. Uh, if they're elected, then we hope that they will support the, the legislation, wherever it may be. So, for example, some success stories from the 2020 election was 
Um, we got Senators Warnock, Ossoff, and Hickenlooper to pledge before they were elected. And of course, after they were sworn in a few months later, they ended up co-sponsoring the legislation. The D.C. Statehood Compact works very well with the pledge because sort of as the federal candidates can then co-sponsor and support federal legislation, uh, the compact is kind of the state uh, the state version of it. So when state candidates pledge, I'll contact them if they're elected and say, hey, will you do something to please further the statehood movement in your state? That could be a resolution. That could be a letter. Uh, it could be something completely different. Um, but those are kind of how the pledge and the compact interact with each other. And uh, I, I think they're a great pairing. And, you know, again, I, I kind of created it because I felt like there was something that needed to be done um, to to get these candidates and elected officials to take action on their support somehow. Well, you're absolutely right. That, that is what needs to be done. Uh, we're doing enough here in Washington. You know, we work, it's like uh, I've said in the past, it's a partisan issue. Uh, my last meeting with a United States Senator was Susan Collins from Maine. And she was nice enough to meet with me for me and Karen for, you know, a long time. But in the end, it was all about retrocession with her, too. So we're working here, but you're the only one I know that's out there in the field. And you're doing great work. And it's so important. Uh, we keep on going up to Capitol Hill. Unfortunately, we testify there was a hearing earlier in the Senate. Uh, there was a hearing last year. And we go up there and we say, uh, this is constitutional and it's the right thing to do. But unfortunately, every member of Congress, we've been at this for 200 years, and every member of Congress already knows that this is constitutional and it's the right thing to do. This is all about partisan politics. And, uh, you know, even the court in, in our, our landmark case uh, to, to be Adams v. Clinton in front of the court, the court said, Supreme Court said to us, you don't have a legal problem. You have a political problem. You can't solve this legally. You can only solve it politically. And uh, what you're doing, Noah, is exactly what needs to be done because that's how the politics is going to work. It's going to come from the bottom up. And uh, I just want to commend you uh, one last time before I let you go about the great work you're doing. And tell people, if people want to help you, if they want to put pressure on on uh, their candidates, is there a website or something they can go to find out about this? Absolutely. So the pledge website is called dcstatehoodpledge.org. And the compact site is dcstatehoodcompact.org. Well, you should go to them, if you please, for our listeners, go. And uh, when you interact with candidates, which you do, you know, they come out and they go to rallies and stuff, make sure you mention this because it's important. This is not about D.C. This is about America. We feel it really, really personally. But believe me, if you believe in a woman's right to choose, if you believe in marriage equality, if you believe in, in legalized marijuana, if you believe in kind of the liberal or progressive agenda, two more senators from the District of Columbia would make all the difference in the world. They would make all the difference in the world and having a vote in the House. So this is really about all of us. 
Noah Wills, thank you so much for the great work you're doing. I hope I get to see you in the future because it's always a pleasure. And thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Uh, we're going to take a brief break, and then we'll have uh, Megan Flynn from the Washington Post on to discuss what happens to D.C. if the Republicans take over, which, unfortunately, we anticipate. Thanks. BBS Radio. With us tonight, we're lucky enough to have a Washington Post reporter, Megan Flynn. And Megan, uh, among other things, uh, writes about what's going on in D.C. and our movement to uh, uh, advance the rights of D.C. citizens. So she recently wrote an article in the Washington Post. It's actually in today's Metro section. It's one of the larger articles I've seen in a while on the subject. So we've asked her to join us. Uh, and talk a little bit about um, what she found out and, and 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 what's going on as we move forward. Uh, Megan, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Uh, um, you wrote this article. It talks about the struggles that D.C. is going to have in trying to uh, get priorities that um, we want in the city accomplished, especially if the um, Congress goes Republican in the fall, because the Republicans have not really been very uh, um, uh, amiable when it comes to granting rights to the District of Columbia. And there's several things you talk about. And the first thing you talk about is the uh, stadium deal. Now, I don't know if people know about this, but RFK Stadium was um, abandoned. I think it's abandoned. It, it hasn't been used for football in many years. And there's all sorts of uh, ideas of what to do with the stadium. Tear it down, put housing there, put a new stadium. And the mayor and the um, and the chairman of the um, city council seem to be at odds with each other about it. Uh, can you talk about that for a minute? Is is Does this do you, do you think that this is not going to move? They say they're leaving it up to Eleanor Holmes Norton, but but Norton seems hesitant. Does she not? Yeah, I mean, the issue has been that Norton, from the start, was very clear that she was not going in to introduce a bill uh, to allow D.C. to purchase the RFK site uh, from the federal government, which owns the land, uh, until Mayor Bowser and Bill Mendelson reached an agreement about, you know, various terms and conditions they wanted in the bill. Um, because of the ongoing investigations on Capitol Hill into the Washington commanders, there's been, you know, some some issues that they've run into uh, with local leaders being hesitant to give them uh, space or money to build their stadium uh, the team's under investigation for alleged widespread sexual harassment, as well as some alleged financial improprieties. And so it's not, they're not even getting a, a warm reception among Democrats 
in Congress because of those investigations. So there's a lot of problems all around. But essentially, that's what led Mendelssohn to say that he did not want to introduce this bill in Congress unless the bill said that D.C. couldn't use the land to build an NFL stadium. Uh, that's something that Mayor Bowser has not been willing to part with. Um, she said there shouldn't be any restrictions in a federal bill about what we can do with our land, and she's been very clear about wanting to invite the commanders back to D.C. Uh, and so that's kind of the heart of the disagreement. Um, and now at this point, they've just been at a stalemate. And so Norton, sticking to what she said, still hasn't introduced it, um, you know, not running, wanting to upset either the mayor or Phil Mendelssohn uh, before they reach an agreement about what to do. And uh, so what was interesting, though, what she said to me uh, that is a bit new is that she would be willing to break the tie, if you will, between Bowser and Mendelssohn if they went to her and basically told her to do that. She's not going to do that on her own volition, but she would if they basically said, you know, together, we want you to. Uh, so that is kind of the, it's a lot of back and forth. Basically, everyone's blaming each other for why, you know, this isn't moving. Um, but that's essentially where things stand now. Whether Norton uh, will actually do that if they come to her, you know, before, um, you know, November midterms come around, um, that's another question. You know, they've just been moving so slowly on this um, that time's running out on them. Well, um, in a, another thing that you mentioned is uh, the parole board issue. You know, most people don't understand this, but unlike most other states, or un unlike the states, I should say, we don't handle our own parole board. And that's been a big issue with us for a long time. Do you get a sense from Congress they're not willing to talk about that either? Well, the thing with that is um, the city has been saying for more than two years that they wanted to get this function back. And Norton has introduced that bill, um, and it's, you know, even the U.S. Parole Commission, which currently oversees parole and supervision in D.C., even they said that they are perfectly happy handing that function back to D.C., given at this point, because there no longer is a federal, federal parole, most of the cases that they handle are D.C. residents. Um, so it's not a huge controversy. The, the, the federal agency itself is in support of it. The issue, though, is that Norton and Congress can't move this bill that would abolish the U.S. Parole Commission and allow D.C. to have authority over parole until D.C. Dis designs its own system. And that's yeah. what they have, um, you know, for more than two years, they've been saying they want to do this but just haven't finished uh, designing the local parole system that they want to have. So until they do that, you know, Congress can't really do anything. They can't, you know, they can't end the U.S. Parole Commission until D.C. has its own system in place. And so there's a lot of uh, delays that have just kind of made it so that D.C. is not going to meet the deadline by November, uh, which is when, the authority for the U.S. Parole Commission expires. 
but it sounds more like it's just going to need to be extended until DC is ready to do that. Well, and that's been our problem consistently with a lot of things. Uh, we're focused on the end result, and uh, we, we really don't uh, have the players in place. It was it was true about statehood too, and so we had a constitutional convention. So, and and that's amazing to find out because to tell you the truth, we have we've had several meetings on this. We've had public meetings. Uh, there's certainly a demand on the uh, on the part of uh, people that are involved in the criminal justice system in Washington D.C. to make that happen. So we'll just have to get on people, I guess, and 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 make sure that we design that. Uh, let's talk about statehood for a minute, because as you know, that's really what my office is about, and and it's about um, you know getting equal rights for the people of the District of Columbia. Now we talked a lot recently about how close we are to statehood, that we've never been closer before. The truth of the matter is we've been close to getting equal rights. We've been this close before. We were this close when we passed the constitutional amendment that passed both houses and was, had bipartisan support but didn't get ratified by the states. We were close when we passed the D.C. Voting Rights Act of getting at least one vote, passed both houses, and uh, it, it, it ended up not becoming law because of a rider that was put on it. But aren't we stuck in the Senate and we can't move right now? There's, there's no way for us to get around the filibuster and there's no way for us to get the, around the uh, Republican from West Virginia who keeps on telling us he's a Democrat. Uh, do you, is, there, uh, is there any way that you, you, you think that's a proper assessment that it that the bill is yeah, I think you know it's, it's kind of a, a situation where it's so close yet so far. Um, you know, like you said, this is definitely the farthest that DC statehood has ever gotten in Congress. Uh, getting a hearing in the Senate, you know, it passed the House. Um, you know, Senator Schumer has even you know expressed support and said that a, a vote on it was possible, but that's what advocates have been waiting on all this time, and it's just not materialized. And the main reason, you know, definitely is so much would have to happen for it to succeed. Um, you know, the, the Senate filibuster is one thing, which, um, you know, Manchin and, and Cinema both said that they're not, you know, going to support efforts to remove the filibuster or reform it. Um, but then the other issue is, even if you did get rid of the filibuster, um, because Joe Manchin already kind of put that line in the sand and said he didn't support the bill at this time, um, you know, you're not going to be able to pass D.C. statehood without the filibuster right now, um, at least, you know, based on what he has said. Of course, so many remain optimistic that with enough advocacy and education, they might be able to change his mind or maybe, you know, after the another election or two, there might be some Democrats who come in who might be more open-minded to it, get them to 51. Um, but those are some of the hurdles right now for this session. So as Norton and uh, the mayor's office told me, they, they still want to see a vote just to see it kind of reach that milestone um, and to kind of move the ball along as far as they can this year. Well, uh, I don't understand the vote because, uh, the, to be honest with you, we, as you just pointed out, the vote's not going to pass. 
there is no education element to it. Uh, we keep on trying to educate Congress. But one thing I can tell you after doing this for 16 years is that every single member of the House and the Senate understand that what we're trying to do is constitutional. They understand that it's the, that it's that's appropriate. Uh, this is all about Democrats and Republicans. Don't you agree? They don't want D.C. to be a state because we don't have any Republicans. You can count the Republicans in Washington on one hand. It's, I'm sorry, say that again? I, I said this is a partisan battle. You know, we were in Adams v. Clinton, in Adams v. Clinton, the court even told us that. They said, yeah, 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 everything you're saying is true. We're, we're, we're sympathizing with everything, but you don't have a legal fight. You have a political fight. But we keep on trying to make it a legal fight, don't we? Don't we keep on going up there, you know, and that seems to me the hearing would be an extension of that. We want to get on the floor. We want to actively say we want to get people on record to know where they stand on statehood. We know where people stand on statehood, uh, every member of Congress, both Republican and Democrat. Do you think the hope is that if they, that the hope on activist part is that maybe national switch, if we can get a floor vote? I mean, I've certainly heard no shortage of people say that they remain hopeful that they can change mind. Um, you know, whether he would actually do that, I think, you know, it's, a different question um but the hope is there on the education piece of it they you know the activists often point to a letter that a number of of constitutional scholars put out saying that they didn't believe that this dc statehood bill in any way violated the constitution or the spirit of the constitution um which they've tried to kind of you know get on mansion's radar um so there's definitely a lot of optimism about it, um, but you know, at this exact moment in time, yeah, realistically, it's it's really an uphill battle to see a way for this to to get through at least this session. Yeah, and and like I say, you know, we we do this time and time again. I've testified before the United States Senate, and um, I, like I say, they understand it's constitutional. This is a political battle. We, you know, my humble opinion. And you don't need to comment on this, but my opinion is we need to, if we want West, if we want Manchin on the bill and we want Cinema and Kelly on the bill, we need to be in Arizona and we need to be in West Virginia. Uh, let me, uh, I mean, it, it, it's really getting to the point where it's starting to get scary, right? With these guys, these Republicans in Congress, they're saying things like they want to change the way we vote in the district they want can you explain that to us they want picture ids they want to get rid of um do they want to get rid of mail-in voting or they just want to restrict mail-in voting they don't want same-day registration all these things that the people of the district columbia have already approved is that right right i mean this is a bill by rodney davis it's a broader elections bill but it has a segment of it that seeks to basically add all of these different uh, new rules to, to D.C. voting. On the mail-in voting part of it, uh, it would stop, you know, sending uh, mail-in votes, mail-in ballots to every registered voter. Um, it would add this photo ID requirement so that, you know, to get a mail-in ballot and to vote in person, you would need to 
um, you know, have a photo ID, prove your identity, which is a major priority of Republicans, you know, in, in Republican states across the country. Um, uh, essentially, you know, seeking to kind of um, use D.C. as a place where they can still um, advocate for their policies, uh, even though they might not be able to do that at the federal, you know, nationally. They've often, you know, tried to still use D.C. as a place where they can, uh, since they have oversight of D.C., can try to change laws locally that way. Um, you know, some of these things they've often, you know, they've been saying for years. Um, uh, there was the recent effort by Senator Cruz to block uh, D.C. from requiring COVID-19 vaccines in schools. Um, you know, the other thing, though, is that a lot of these will still need to get through, like, the entire Congress to become law in D.C. Um, and some of the more extreme efforts, I think you referenced the one Republican who wants to totally end uh, D.C. home rule. You know, Norton and others in D.C. government have said that those are probably, while it's scary that they would, you know, suggest to do that, they don't believe it would succeed because you're still going to have to get past the Senate filibuster. Um, and so, you know, having a majority of the U.S. Senate vote on some of these more extreme policies affecting D.C. is maybe not quite as likely to happen. And so that was a little point of optimism that some of the D.C. leaders expressed. Well, I mean, I agree that, you know, not only would it have to get over that hurdle, but it'd have to be signed by the President of the United States. And, uh, you know, that's not going to happen. But what I see the danger is here, and I don't know if you've gotten any sense of this on Capitol Hill, but you've got an election coming up in 2024. And the District of Columbia makes a really good straw dog for the Republican Party. Uh, we are very liberal. We have uh, gay, we have uh, same-sex marriage. We have legalized marijuana. Uh, we protect a woman's right to choose, uh, all these things that Republicans don't like. Uh, and since you, as you pointed out, uh, the Constitution under the district clause gives Congress the right to do pretty much anything it pleases in the District of Columbia. Do you think there's a sentiment up there that they're going to start attacking Washington, D.C. because they can say, look, this is what the Democrats do. When you let Democrats control things, this is what they do. Look at this mess. We've had a lot of corruption in D.C., as you know, from Jack Evans and, and, and well, I could go on and on and on. You know who the names are, and most of our listeners do, too. Do you think there's a danger that they're just going to hold us up in order to make this a PR thing for, for them, for the, for the elections that are coming up in 2024? They get to beat us up for two years? Well, James Comer, who's uh, the ranking member on the Oversight Committee, uh, certainly expressed a desire to increase oversight and investigations of D.C. If Republicans are in the majority, I certainly think we can expect them uh, to want to intervene more in D.C. affairs, um, specifically on this committee, um, which, you know, it, that's not necessarily new. They've They've always... 
uh, have a have had an inclination to to want to do that when they're in the majority. Um, and certainly, I, I think it will we'll see that again if if they do win the majority in November. Yeah, they usually do it though, Megan. Uh, uh, traditionally, they've done it through the budget. I mean, maybe they'll do it through the budget again, but it seems to sure. me that they're they're being legislatively more aggressive than they have in the past, especially if you look like at things like marijuana, where we passed recreational marijuana and they let it sit up on the hill and they didn't do anything about it, so it became law. And for our listeners that don't know how that works, uh, we every law that's passed in the District of Columbia has to sit up on Capitol Hill for 30 to 60 legislative days, depending on what kind of legislation it is. And if they... You know, and if nobody says, uh, nobody tries to modify it or, uh, you know, overturn the legislation, then it automatically becomes law. Um, well, what else did you, is there anything that, that, that you, I'm, I'm trying to scan the article really quickly again because we did this, uh, uh you were kind enough to let us squeeze this in, uh, uh, your busy schedule. But is there anything else that you'd like to add to, to, what you said in the article about the the sense you're getting from uh, the people on Capitol Hill and also from the activists. Uh, sure. I mean, I think the the last couple of things I'd mention is that um, the riders, uh, which you alluded to in the budget, um, are kind of right now a, a main focus as well of um, D.C. government leaders. Um, to see if those will remain in the budget or not. Um, for now, House and Senate Democrats removed the two writers, which um, uh, prohibit D.C. from using local funds to subsidize abortion for low-income women, and another that prohibits D.C. from having a legal um, uh, recreational marijuana industry, despite marijuana being legal, uh, to possess. Um, and so those writers, for the first time, are not in either the House or Senate budget proposal. Uh, but I think what we can certainly expect to see is that Republicans are going to try to add them back. And because Republican votes are needed to pass the budget due to the Senate filibuster, um, I mean, it, again, we just run into the same issue um, of, you know, it being a, a big hurdle to remove the writers once and for all. But certainly that's kind of a, one of the last things, along with the desire to give D.C. control of its National Guard, some of the last things that uh, D.C. leaders are looking at is, with optimism at least, uh, for the remainder of the congressional session. Well, and we, you know, we've always had great hope about the National Guard thing because it makes so much sense to us on so many levels, not only after the problem with the insurrection where, where the mayor couldn't call out the guard for so long and, and the uh, uh, Metropolitan Police had to intervene to, to support the Capitol Police, uh, but also because it just makes financial sense for the government. It's like uh, uh, we have another layer, layer of bureaucracy, but, but uh, yeah, that's been a problem. Uh, what about uh, the lame duck session? Do you have any sense that there'll be, um, um, you know, um, that we have any chances in the lame duck session to to, to pass things? I honestly do not know. I mean, DC affairs 
or I mean, regardless of which party's in power, are not necessarily going to like rush to the top of the agenda um, uh, for you know some of these more local priorities have been you know traditionally kind of tough uh, to get through Congress in like a normal timeline. Um, so I mean, I I guess I I don't know. Um, certainly, Beverly Perry, who's a special advisor to Mayor Bowser. Um, you know, her ultimate hope, she said, was for this, like, a quote-unquote historic lame duck session where Democrats would put the statehood bill on the floor. But, of course, that's, you know, that's a big hope, um, whether that actually happens. I mean, who, who can say at this point? Yeah, and that's uh, hope springs eternal, and I certainly don't want to rain on the parade. Uh, let's all hope that can happen. So let me ask you one last question before I let you go, because I know you're you're busy and you, you you've got to get uh, on with things. But uh, look, look into your crystal ball as a Washington Post reporter. Uh, you think the Democrats have a decent chance, given the passage of the recent bill uh, by the president and the fact that uh, gas prices are plummeting uh, two cents a week? Uh, do you think we've got any chance in in November of holding on to the House and 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 uh, maybe increasing our numbers in the Senate? Oh, well, I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but can say that from the you know more political observers that I talk to and uh, you know pay attention to, uh, pretty much the expectation is that it's going to be a better night for Republicans. So I mean that's. You know, that's not necessarily uh, a comfort to Democrats at this point, but that's certainly the kind of the broad agreement, um, at least that I've been hearing. Well, and I used to be a great um, uh, predictor of uh, the political future until I uh, said to the world, there's no way Donald Trump can get elected. Uh, But after that, after uh, 2016, I stopped making political predictions, so I can appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for sharing that article, not only with us, but with America through the Washington Post. Please keep up the good work. And, uh, again, we thank you for all the hard work you're doing. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. I wish I knew how would feel to be free I wish I could break all the chains holding me I wish I could say all the things that I should say say I'm loud say I'm clear